and welcome to the latest episode of Jumpcast, the podcast from the award-winning team behind Jumpcut Online. My name is Sarah Buddery and I am your host for today and I am joined once again by Barry Levitt. Today we are discussing 2004's Home on the Range. I have been very excited to get to this one. Um, It has been marked in my calendar. I know it's been marked in your calendar, Barry. Oh yeah. And we're we're here. We're finally here. Uh, how are you feeling, <laughs> dare I ask, before we um, dive into this one? Look, the great segment... No. Um, <laughs> when <laughs> they... We've, we've talked a lot about this, this journey and how it kind of impacted our experiences and how kind of revisiting anything that has nostalgia or, or memories of childhood. I mean, that's basically nostalgia, but anything that has like nostalgic elements to it and revisiting that can be difficult uh, because mm. it can mean the shattering of something you once knew. <laughs> or sometimes it means like it's even better than you remembered. And that certainly has happened as well. But I've, I've, I've been a casual defender of movies like Home on the Range, I think, on this podcast for a while now. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I had nothing but fond kind of childhood memories. And, well, childhood. I mean, I would have been 12, 11 when it came out. So, yeah, childhood. Um, early teens, me, loved this movie. I watched it a lot. Um, and I, I watched it probably like maybe the last time was about 10 years ago, eight years ago. And I don't remember it being, I remember being like, cool, this is fun. Maybe I just wasn't paying attention. Maybe it was just like in the background while I was like cleaning or something. And maybe that's how <laughs> I kept it at positive in my mind. But Sarah, all good things must come to a crushing, devastating <laughs> end. Uh, and my, my childhood dreams were tested. My childhood joy was tested uh, and ultimately lost in a <laughs> ugly battle in our 45th Disney film. 45, look at us go. Mm-hmm. Um, this film is an experience, and I think mm-hmm. it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was my first watch of the film. I, I say first watch, I watched it twice uh, because I apparently am a glutton for punishment, but the first time I was just kind of at a loss for words over it, so I didn't really get to write down any notes. I was just uh, taking it all in and experiencing it, and then I was like, oh, I have no notes for this podcast, so I need to go back and then write some stuff down. Um, and I now have pages and pages of notes, so I am I am ready to get stuck into this film. Um, this is this is going to be a fun one. I I've got a good feeling about our chat around this film. I'm not expecting depth. I'm not expecting nuance, but I'm expecting a lot of fun. Um, as we share our thoughts on this very interesting film. Um, but before I feel like we, we always bring I feel like we always bring depth and nuance to the table, even yeah. at the, even in the most <laughs> troubling time. We'll we'll give you the, we'll bring you the insight. Don't don't you worry about that. Yeah, we'll we'll find something to dive into. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm just not uh not promising that it'll be as in depth uh as some of our other discussions have been, but uh we'll we'll still find some good stuff for you. Don't worry. Um, okay, so before we get stuck in properly, uh, our uh plot synopsis is a a very brief one uh from IMDb this time, but it is uh to save their farm, the resident animals go bounty hunting for a notorious outlaw. That is it. That is the plot of the film. Um, I'm sure you have got more to tell us uh, than that very slim plot synopsis from IMDb. So um, yeah, over to you, Barry, with all of our history and interesting stuff, fun facts that we need to know about Home on the Range. 
I think there's a pretty good chance that these um, that this information is more interesting than anything in the 76 minutes of <laughs> Home on the Range. Um, but that's for the listeners to decide. Um, okay, so <laughs> let's let's go back to 1995, and Pocahontas has just wrapped, uh, and Mike Gabriel, who co-directed Pocahontas and was you know a really really involved in in all of the kind of development and the characters and everything in Pocahontas, um, he'd been at Disney since Fox and the Hound, and his career is at a really high point right now. I mean, he had directed um, Rescuers Down Under, and he had just come off Pocahontas, and he wanted to take on a new and exciting project, and it's a project that he initially pitched at the same time that he pitched um, Pocahontas and and really wanted to work on a Western. Um, So he pitched a Western based on two things, uh, the country Western song uh, Ghost Riders in the Sky, which has been sung by just about anyone and everyone, but probably most popularly done um, by Johnny Cash, although he was not the original um, singer of it and the Rudyard Kipling, Kipling novel slash the the film adaptation of Captain's Courageous, which starred Spencer Tracy. Um, and Gabriel's story was called Sweating Bullets, which was the original name of the film. And he was kind of, he had developed the whole thing and then started to process and develop further with um, Michael Giamo. Um, and they would co- they were set to co-direct uh, Sweating Bullets. And it was a sort of Western with kind of supernatural elements and, I will read for you um, how Mike Gabriel kind of described the process. This is from the book uh, they drew as they pleased, Volume 6, which is a delight, if there ever was one, and has some really um, amazing concept art from what should have been Sweating Bullets, but became Home on the Range. Um, In my story, the little boy from Captain's Courageous is actually a boy that is raised in the East. His dad owns a railroad, and his dad realizes that he's got a spoiled boy, so he sends him out to the west to kind of toughen him up. Then the train gets held up by outlaws over a train trestle, and the little boy gets knocked off the train. He splashes in the river and ends up on a cattle drive. The main character is actually a cowpoke, one of those cowboys on a cattle drive, and he teaches the kid kind of to be tough and to man up. Developing a stronger movie, however, was never an easy process, and the initial plot wasn't yet fully satisfying. The story eventually evolved into a Lady in the Tramp kind of a thing, with the animals being the part of the narrative, not really getting into the humans too much, but just taking the movie really from the animals' point of view. The main star of the animal version was a little guy called Bullets. He was a steer who never spooked. He was the one steer that didn't go down with the herd, and he had his own way of doing things. He was a brave little guy, and he basically saved the herd, because Slim and the Willies were these ghost-riding cowboys, ghosts, did not have ghosts in Home on the Range, who rode through the clouds. (laughs) The clouds were their mountains, and they drove ghost cattle through the clouds up in the sky in thunderstorms. They liked spooking herds off of the cliffs to grow their herd. The only reason they didn't go off the cliff in our story was because our little bullets was a brave guy, and that kept everybody from going off the cliff. And we had this idea for this jackrabbit character named Jack, who had his foot cut off, and this little peg leg that was that was supposed to be his lucky rabbit's foot, which was cut off. He was the unluckiest guy in the world. Now... Listening to Mike Gabriel describe it, it may be readily apparent that that sounds nothing at all like what ends up being Home on the Range. Um, And that's because essentially they took about five years later, after 95, so we're now October 2000, um, it was kind of decided that just things just weren't working and they they could not get this story really going. Um, And both Gabriel and Giamma were taken off the project, uh, which was pretty crushing for both of them. Uh, and before I, I tell you a bit more about what happens to the two of them, I just thought I should mention Joe Grant, uh, who we've talked about as much as we possibly could, I hope, um, who had been with the studio 
since the early 30s working on shorts before his first feature film uh, that he worked on was Snow White, which is, of course, the first Disney film. Um, Joe Grant had developed ideas for Gabriel's, Gabriel and Jamo's concept, um, and Home on the Range was actually his last feature film credit, which is unbelievable in almost, uh, let me see if I can do math, almost 70 full years after uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. An absolutely extraordinary career. Obviously, he left Disney for many decades before returning in the 90s and was so influential through the entire Renaissance. Uh, he created characters like the true villain, Mrs. Potts. Um, he brought in Miko and all sorts of animals in Pocahontas and, and just countless characters and ideas through the whole Renaissance. Um, and all the way up to, to Home on the Range, he was involved in just an extraordinary uh, career and he passed away in 2005, just after this film was released. Um, so going back to Mike Gabriel, even though he was taken off the project that he started, he continued to really shine at Disney and was responsible for a lot of great concepts and ideas. And perhaps most, not essentially well-known, but he is actually the one who created the um, CG Walt Disney title card logo, which has kind of really evolved in a lot of different ways and they play around with it in a lot of different ways now with certain films but he was the he was the one who engineered that change from that animated um the simple like line going over to this beautiful like cg castle so he was actually he is responsible for perhaps the most iconic um kind of disney image of the last 20 years or so so he he has definitely made his impact and a, a fun trivia question. I had no idea what the answer is, so don't worry if you don't. Um, do you know what the first film with that CG title card logo was? It was 2006 and not animated, if that helps. Ooh, 2006. Hmm. Um, no. I, <laughs> I can't don't worry, even I, think what I had no idea out. either. It was uh, <laughs> the very first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Um, and okay. when when it premiered, there was kind of like this massive applause, and everyone like stood up in applause because they were so blown away by the title card. So he did his <laughs> job, and then some. Um, and uh, Giamo had actually left Disney after that for about nine years, um, and was called back to uh, work on Frozen. And he was the art director of Frozen, uh, which allowed him to follow in the footsteps of his idol and one of our idols, uh, Ivan Earl, who was a major art director at Disney in the 50s. Um, so with Guillermo and Gabriel off the project, Disney brought back Will Finn, uh, who was at DreamWorks and had just directed um, The Road to El Dorado, which is amazing if you haven't seen it. Um, and he would co-direct with John Sanford. Um, Alan Menken made his return as well, the legend himself, who is the current living uh, person with the most Oscars, only Alfred Newman with nine, and Walt Disney with 22 have more Oscar wins in their lives, um, although obviously both of them have passed away. So with eight, Alan Menken, um, who's tied with Edith Head, the costume designer who also is, has passed away. So Alan Menken is the reigning uh, living person with the most Oscar wins. Uh, did not get an Oscar nomination for this, though, um, but he did make his return to Disney uh, with the score of Home on the Range, and he returned, or uh, sorry, with the, the music um, and the songs of Home on the Range and the score. Um, and he teamed up with Glenn Slater to write the lyrics. Um, and Little Patch of Heaven, which is performed by Katie Lang, was actually um, designed or and written for Sweating Bullets, uh, and was a song that was already in place before Sanford and Finn became directors. Um, but all the other songs came in after once Sanford and Finn were involved. Uh, and the original film was actually hit with a PG-13 rating, 
uh, which is for those not in America is it goes G then PG then PG thirteen, uh, and I think it jumps all the way to R from there. It's wild. Um, but essentially, that means that you can't go into the cinema if you're less than if you're thirteen or if you're under thirteen and don't have a parent with you, uh, which obviously for Disney is a nightmare come true. Uh, and this PG-13 rating was because of the utter joke uh, that is in the beginning, uh, which we'll which we'll get into. Um, <laughs> and the saloon sequence swells a couple other um, off-color jokes, uh, but they did manage to argue the film down to a PG rating without really getting rid of anything, which is kind of the power you have when you're a company as big as Disney. Um, and going back to music for a second, speaking of, we kind of talked a lot about Disney's love of jam-packing a um, Top 40s song in either the end credits or anywhere they can into a film uh, and they love a good top 40 artist so this time not only did they have one triple top 40 artist they tripled down and had three and had songs performed by katie lang bonnie Raitt, and tim mcgraw who performed three of the songs in the movie and the release of we talked about how the release of home on the range was originally supposed to be 2003 and then brother bear would come after in 2004 uh, but they switched it around to promote the Lion King DVD. Um, so Home on the Range was released in April 2004, which is an odd month, and it was the first time that Disney hadn't released either in the summer window or the Christmas window since The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh all the way back in 1977. Uh, the closest other example is Dinosaur, which does come out in May, but it's at the end of May, so just before June. So really, I think that counts in the summer window as well. Um, but they kind of released it in, in April, I guess, probably because they didn't have very much faith in it because it had been a film that they really could not get a story going to save their lives, um, basically up until release. And they probably didn't have a whole lot of faith, so they dropped it in April, um, hoping that it, it would kind of attract people and it wouldn't lose to the other summer blockbusters at, at the, in the same time. Uh, it didn't work. And the film earned well. Actually, I've looked up the box office of this, and there's there's a few different answers. Uh, the general consensus is that it earned 145 million worldwide. Although I think that might be with inflation, because the general reports indicate that this movie did not make up its budget, uh, which was 110 million. So I believe the the actual um, worldwide box office was somewhere between 100 to like 110 million, which is below the budget, which is not uh what you hope to achieve when you release a film so it is yet another uh crushing loss i think they lost around 60 70 million um as a result if you include the marketing and everything making home on the range so perhaps unsurprisingly this is another one that has really like there was no as far as disney's concerned besides like the home entertainment release there was no evidence that this is a disney movie uh <laughs> you will not find it in the parks you will not find it in in the stores you 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 will not see this film be referenced um except in like the posters of except in lists of like all of the films good luck finding <laughs> anything um with the exception of like ebay for home on the range mm -hmm. um and a lot of people kind of point the finger at Home on the Range for being the reason that Disney is no longer doing hand-drawn animation. And I don't think that's entirely true, because the decision was actually made after Treasure Planet was an unbelievably massive box office failure. However, obviously talking timelines and how many years these things take to make, uh, Brother Bear and Home on the Range were well into production already. Uh, although there were discussions at, at points whether Home on the Range would be hand-drawn or, or CGI. Uh, but obviously they went with hand-drawn and home on the range essentially is the last one in kind of a 
it kind of it ends the streak really of of or it's the last film in that run of like animated hand-drawn animation we will obviously get two more um but at this point in time as far as they were concerned they were never going to do it again and it was very much a move to kind of go where Pixar especially was going. This was the year 2004 that The Incredibles was released to many, many hundreds of millions in profit. Um, and this was the year where DreamWorks was kind of transitioning out of, of hand-drawn. Um, they were doing, you know, they did Road to El Dorado and, and Sinbad and Sinbad in, in Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron. Uh, but, but I believe Sinbad was their last hand-drawn one as well. And then they were also starting the transition to like full CGI. And they really saw this is the opportunity they their hand-drawn movies were not making money anymore with the exception of uh lilo and stitch and brother bear both made by the orlando studio that they closed so <laughs> so all they had left were a bunch of movies that were were really big in scope and making no money at all um and in fact in some cases losing a lot of money so they they decided to make that change and it it's not entirely home on the range's fault however I think it's fair to say that if Home on the Range was like a Beauty and the Beast or Aladdin or Lion King type success, they probably would have kept making hand-drawn animation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, where, where to begin? I think as you're talking about this being the last hand-drawn, at least for a little while anyway, and, and there's only two more hand-drawn ones that we get to talk about, um, that seems like a good place to start. And we make you know no no uh attempt to cover the fact that we are both more in favor of um hand drawn i know I'm, I'm definitely speaking uh for myself and i think for you as well oh 100 um yeah in 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 that's the the style that we prefer um we frequently talk about you know the the use of of cgi and and as they started to blend those two styles together but there's something about hand drawn that is just that much more appealing um this film kind of <laughs> i don't want to say it ruined it completely but it did make me question why i love hand drawn so much because yeah. it is so hideous to look at i i, I just was... want to preface quickly that like let's look <laughs> a lot of people get angry when you criticize things and they're like well why don't you do it and the answer is i can't do it i can't draw to save my life i can barely <laughs> barely do a convincing stick man okay but that does not make this film any less abhorrent to look at. Yeah, 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 yeah. The the I will say I, I will say a shout out to the background department because I think the landscapes generally are gorgeous, um, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they evoke that western feel exceptionally well. Um, yeah, and they do a great job, but they're very sparse. This film is very empty looking. There's not a whole mm-hmm. lot to look at, and what's there is very strange and, um. I'll let you I'll let you go into it but it's it's the design particularly of the cows that I find so upsetting. Mm. Yeah, they go for this weird like graphic angular style so this isn't... sharp. Yeah, like those the the <laughs> this is going to sound crass but they're like the backsides of the cows look so pointy and it's just very confusing to me. I don't understand that as a design choice and this isn't the first time that we've seen this sort of more structured style but i think it's it's how it's using the characters i mean some of the backgrounds before i mean you mentioned ivan Dell in your history bit and any excuse to talk about him but the style of the the backgrounds in sleeping beauty is quite 
unusual and strange mm. when you look at it the the trees are sort of square and everything is quite angular looking but it's that's a deliberate style choice to sort of evoke the feeling of medieval paintings and tapestries and it completely works for that style of film but this it, it's just it's a very odd choice i think for the style of film that it is i just I think you could have that style for the backgrounds and actually I think I'm glad you mentioned the backgrounds because I think it does work for the backgrounds this sort of like heavily stylized uh the colors are all just a little bit too saturated not quite you know realistic or how they should be uh there's a vastness as well to the landscapes as well that I think is really captured quite well but then yeah these characters they're just so they're so ugly to look at and we spend a lot of time with these characters as well so it was just unpleasant i think to, to look at and like you said we we are not artists we probably couldn't animate a film to save our lives but absolutely not we... but these people can these yes, the people right, the people, the supervising <laughs> animators alone like on this film these are top notch people yeah. like they there is a lot of great talent in this movie uh, mm-hmm. I don't know what they were doing while making this. I, I think there was a lot of um, frustration in the air because you're basically being told that this is kind of, this is it. Like yeah. everything you have done your whole life and that we've done as a studio is ending because some other companies have appeared and are making more money than us. Um, mm. I think this was a difficult time to to be a, an animator at, at Disney in, in the late, the end of the nineties and the early two thousands when you're working on these projects that all of a sudden after like eight nine films in a row that made you a the only like the worst case scenario is you made a lot of money instead of like unfathomable sums you know like there was mm-hmm. there weren't any failures there were there were only successes year after year after year after year and the only issue is that the scale of the success was getting smaller it's not like all of a sudden you were it's not like you would make tons of money with lion king and then completely crash with pocahontas no pocahontas mm-hmm. made a lot of money just not as much um yeah but for a company that's always in business generally you're not trying to get less profit the next year you know you're always looking to make more and more and more and more and more uh, until you take over and swallow every other company in the world and, and you're the only thing left uh, <laughs> it's probably every company's <laughs> goal whether they admit it or not um but you know you want to make the the most money that's that's the point essentially of of business um so you know you're going from the early 90s where all you can do is make more and more and more with each movie and then pocahontas there's a drop off uh that's never really recovered uh, which actually is not recovered until Frozen, really, that they make like absolutely obscene sums of money, and that's 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 you know a good twenty years from there. So at at that point, they can't see that coming. Um, and then you're getting worse, and then you're starting to kind of experiment after Fantasia 2000, which did not make any money. Um, and you know you go to Dinosaur, which 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 did, um, but then Atlantis, which doesn't, uh, Treasure Planet, which uh, Emperor's New Groove, which which did not very well but not terribly um treasure planet which was in which was their biggest disaster in their history um and then you have this which which doesn't make any money either um so it must be a very difficult time to be working there um and i would imagine it's a time of probably limited inspiration because everything just feels so unsure and and uncertain and indeed these people who have been doing hand-drawn their whole life and that's their craft uh, you know, Disney's like, now we're going to only make CG films. That's it. Mm. No, and, and hand-drawn animation is done. Obviously, they changed their mind and do a couple more in the future, but they don't know that in the early 2000s. Yeah, I think what is sort of happening 
around and outside this film is important as well because a lot of the other studios are now completely leaving behind hand-drawn and Disney is is still there and has been sort of defiantly still there and still doing hand-drawn for quite a while but it's they now really have no choice because there's only so many fa- I don't want to call them failures because you know they still made money but they they weren't they weren't hitting the numbers that they had been previously and yeah that is partially due to the fact that there's a lot more competition now and you know Pixar as well that you know they obviously become part of Disney but that they're sort of bringing in the numbers that Disney would like to be seeing themselves and DreamWorks are doing well and all these other studios are sort of springing up and you know Blue Sky as well doing the Ice Age films though the all of these films were sort of happening around this time so it wasn't just Disney having monopoly of the animated movie market anymore they suddenly have all of these competitors so when your film is you know it's not just that it's not as as good as as previous films that they've made but it's not even as good as the other films that are coming out from other studios at the time yeah so it's because because for the longest time there wasn't (laughs) anyone else you know, mm-hmm. they had they, they competed with Don Bluth in, in the 80s and in early 90s, and they were losing in the 80s. But by the time um, Little Mermaid came, it, that wasn't the it was hardly a competition anymore. I mean, Don Bluth, was, the studio was still doing well um, and they were still mm-hmm. making money. But comparatively, it was nothing. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's a good thing you mentioned, you know, that, that this year in particular um, is The Incredibles. This is Shrek mm-hmm. 2, which made nine hundred and twenty million dollars worldwide. Jeez. That is an unbelievable <laughs> amount in 2004. Um, or now, um, also Shark Tale, which <laughs> which quality is questionable, but that made three hundred and sixty-seven million dollars mm. off a off a seventy-five million dollar budget. So the budget is smaller than the hand drawn. Yeah. Um, Shrek Two had a budget of one hundred and fifty million, but made nine hundred and twenty million. So who cares? Uh, but the budget mm. of Shrek, to put it in comparison, is forty million dollars higher than Home on the Range and made eight hundred million dollars more. <laughs> I mean. Yeah. And Shark Tale cost less and made two hundred million dollars more. It's funny that you mentioned <laughs> that you mentioned those three films in particular. So they all came out in the same year, right? Two thousand four, yeah. As... Incredibles, Shark Two, uh, Shark Two, and Shark Tale. Okay, so I I mentioned to you off mic before we started recording that I did not see Home on the Range at the cinema because I saw The Incredibles instead. So I think by this point, I mistakenly said to you that we only made we only did like one cinema trip a year when I was younger. But I think by this point the big multiplex multi-screen cinema had come to my hometown so i did go more often because i saw all three of those films that you mentioned at the cinema but i did not see home on the range at the cinema yeah so and Shrek 2 even... only came out a month after um home on the range yeah so even just using me as the tiniest example i gave my money <laughs> to all of those other animated films that came out that year and i did not give my money to home on the range for whatever reason so it sounds like a lot of other people did the same thing because this film did not do well for Disney and all the other films did a lot better. So change had to come and change does come for Disney sort of from this point on really where they where they go to almost exclusively just CGI animated films with, with two yeah, exceptions. The, 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 the mission at this point was no more hand-drawn ever. I think it's more mm. because the next four films do not do much for them or the next three i can't remember how many there are mm. um do very little for them financially that they're like okay maybe we should go back but then it's and then it's <laughs> only for a very brief moment where they make two and then they're gone again 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, God. You can just... I've not really thought about this until we started talking about it now, but you can just get the sense that in the making of this film, there's just so little care that has gone into it. it do you know what? It doesn't feel like Disney. It feels so odd. And it's not just the animation style. I think it's the tone of it as well. It's. I was quite shocked by how many adult jokes there were in this film and how like off-colour it is at times. I was... It's just not what I... I know you get in Disney films, like, particularly more now, that there'll be, you know, they call it, like, oh, the joke for the parents or something, so they've got something to laugh at as well as the kids. But I don't know. There's something There's something very off about this film. It has not aged well at all. And I think yeah. that a lot of that is in, like, the jokes and the references. I use jokes in air quotes because... I didn't find yeah, it. Yeah, well, I was I was going <laughs> to ask you and how many of those are funny and the answer is maybe one. Um Yeah. But yeah, this it's it's interesting because, you know, that idea of throwing in like adult jokes or like jokes for the parents who are there. It wasn't a thing when Disney was going before and the reason it wasn't is cuz they didn't need them. You know, they yeah. they were able to create compelling stories um that a whole family could enjoy. And I mean, Lilo and Stitch does have I don't think it has like adult jokes necessarily like wink wink like these are jokes about sex kind of thing um like like this does um but it does it does it does have more like things that i think adults can find relatable because it tackles like interesting themes and, and disney's all never been you know shy of looking at heavier themes and looking at you know loss and despair and and, and sadness and death and, and all sorts of things mm-hmm. they're not afraid to like look away from those things or failure you know things that are relatable less relatable to you know six seven year olds and more relatable to to the parents bringing them to the cinema um mm. so they never they just didn't need to do it before and this whole trend that's that's now very prevalent and kind of if anything probably made famous by shrek and shrek was really yes. designed as a as a middle finger to disney like it exists <laughs> to screw like jeffrey katzenberg wanted shrek to exist to to say screw you disney like <laughs> go to the bowels of hell where you belong and honestly it worked because it, it destroyed them at the box office um mm. and and really launched dreamworks to be a very 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 successful um animation studio so that wasn't their first film but it, it was their first kind of massive movie they literally made a best like an oscar for best animated feature to award that movie yeah. um like it was it, it changed the game um and really started that whole kind of adult humor thing um but it didn't need to be there before because most of the time you could craft um, a compelling story without like that wink wink nudge nudge and, and it works in a lot of films mm. including Shrek because Shrek very feels very anti-Disney in the sense that it's very much the opposite of kind of what we've come to expect from a fairy tale it's very much a satire of a fairy tale Home on the Range isn't really a satire of a western I don't think um, if anything yeah. it feels very traditional western just missing all of every every possible aspect that makes a western compelling um, <laughs> which is which is not which is not ideal um <laughs> But yeah, it's it's this. There's very much a new trend in animation because the stories are getting lazier. Uh, not mm. always. This is this is a general kind of sweeping statement, and there are literally dozens and dozens of examples that would go very much against this. But there is definitely a rise in the increase of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge jokes to like keep adults on board because there's an idea now that I don't think existed 40, 50 years ago that animation uh, is is only for children and really quite excruciating for any adult to sit through. 
um mm. which is a shame and and but this film definitely buys into that and is like it, it just kind of throws in these jokes that like no kid would understand um and that are specifically designed as like adults we know you're suffering through this terrible movie <laughs> um but like please accept these jokes that we've made just for you and that, that didn't mm. used to be there and i think it's there because of this this trend that that shrek kind of started and i think home on the range kind of feels like a, a, a almost like a response to that being like we need to do something like that that's what works yeah it did, it did not for them <laughs> it does not work because... the, diff- the key difference is shrek is funny that was right, the, that's yeah. the big one <laughs> the, the shrek, joke, the shrek jokes, jokes make sense in that universe and they and they they benefit the story and they 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 add to it rather than like just being there for yeah. no reason other than to try and get a laugh out of you right exactly and i think what is so weird about this film and it's it's humor again humor is in air quotes um is is how weirdly it sits with the rest of the film so there's some there's some very off color jokes and and we'll we'll get into those i think there's a specific couple of characters that just are absolute abominations um we'll we'll come to them but it's it's not just those sort of like off color jokes there's also like a, a lot of really weird references to like eating meat or eating i don't know just stuff about like the animals like i'm explaining it badly but like when no the, the you're, little pig... basically there's a lot of awareness of the fact that they're going that potentially they could be eaten and that a lot of people eat meat and i think that's yes. one of the big issues in this movie is that which ties into jokes but it really is about the story of home on the range which is to say there there is barely one and it is not surprising to me that a film that they spent 5 years working on before then this before 2000 so they spent 9 years uh trying to piece this thing together and if you there has to be a point as creatives when if it has been 5 years and you can't get it going you should probably just kill the project entirely rather than changing and bringing in people to make a completely different version of that story disney has a lot yeah. of films that never saw the light of day every studio has dozens of i i literally work in the field where you develop shows or develop films and mm. it is my career and you see that a lot of the things you create no matter who you attach and no matter who's writing or whatever do not get made lots of things yeah. there are more things that haven't been made than have been made it, it's kind of unfathomable to think about but it's true every you know for every success a studio has um, or a company has, there are a dozen that, that did not make it. So yeah. there has to be a point when you say, this isn't working. Let's let's mm-hmm. shelve it. We can include the concept art sometime in the future. We can reference it. Maybe 10 years from now, we can revisit it, which happened a couple. We talked a couple times about mm-hmm. how there were initial ideas for a film that disappeared and, and came back 30, 40, 50 years later. Or in mm. or five years later, you know, there are, there are moments that in Disney's history and indeed pretty much every kind of company where they revisit things and see maybe this is the time for this story now. Um, mm. But they didn't do that and they kind of just kept going. And it took, it's crazy to think this took almost, a, this took like more time than it took Bambi. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> like Or like the same <laughs> amount of time that they developed Bambi. Um, mm. And this is just not, there's, there's, there is an extremely incoherent story. Um, mm-hmm, there are. Mm-hmm. This probably has the most plot holes. Um, but the real, the biggest issue is is the motivation of the characters and who these characters are because it changes. Like if you read the screenplay, I feel like it would change every page. Maggie, in particular, <laughs> who is voiced by by Roseanne Barr, who 
yeah, it's basically Roseanne Barr playing Roseanne Barr, and she kind of makes those off-color mm-hmm. jokes that that are very much her brand, um, and it feels like she's just playing herself, which is which is which is fine. Um, and Judy Dench, who plays another cow, is essentially Judy Dench, like reading off in her voice so she can get paid, um, which I respect. <laughs> but like, they don't really bring anything to these characters at all except themselves, and like the the story is not there. Like Maggie's motivations change, which seems like every two minutes. Um, like her, okay. So let's let's let, let, let me just dive into the story of Home on the Range for a sec. So basically, they're they're at a farm. Maggie is going from a, a different farm that's been shut down for mysterious reasons. We'll find them out. Um, but she goes to this new farm called Little Patch of Heaven. There's a lovely Katie Lang song about the Little Patch of Heaven. Uh, and they're there. They're all happy. And then like all of a sudden, they're like, bam! The the sheriff guy comes and he's like, you owe like seven hundred and fifty dollars. Uh, if you can't pay this, we have to auction off your farm. And all the farms in town, like in the area, have been auctioned off. Like she's like basically the last one. Um, so Maggie has just arrived. Everyone looks nice. She wants to save the farm. Like her her only goal is to save the farm, and she has a plan. So they go, and then the plan changes because they discover conveniently that this mysterious man is wanted for seven hundred and fifty dollars, which just so happens, who could have predicted, um, <laughs> to be the exact same amount of money that they need to save the farm. So they're going on the way to save the farm, and then all of a sudden, like, she's accused by Judy Dench's cow. <laughs> I don't even remember their name. <laughs> Mrs. Calloway. Mrs. Um, <laughs> Maggie is accused of, by Mrs. Calloway of, like, being vengeful and, like, only wanting to do this for, like, revenge or something, which makes no sense at all because no there's sense. never has that ever come up. But then Maggie agrees that that is she is doing it to be vengeful, which makes even <laughs> less sense because there's literally no evidence at any point in this film that there, she would ever act what what is vengeful about trying to save the farm and then it go it flip flops back and forth and she has like 70 different motivations through this movie and this movie is only 70 minutes long she has like a motivation a minute and it makes no sense it is mm-hmm. it is tough it is it is tough to sit through a, and, and it, it, it seems clear that like seven different versions of this script have just kind of been mashed together because there are like various characters like the the jackrabbit um, who will like who appears in the first like few minutes and then disappears for like forty minutes and shows up again and it's almost mm-hmm. like they introduce all these characters and they're like oh shoot we forgot to have this guy because we might want to sell him as merch later um, so yeah. let's throw him back in half an hour later for like another scene it is it is sloppy mm-hmm. yeah it's I'm gonna I'm gonna attempt to fix Home on the Range like I attempted to fix Brother Bear last week. I'm not sure how successful it was, but I'm gonna try anyway. Well, it was a lot. It was a lot shorter. <laughs> yeah, but it was. I think I think it I think it would have worked. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. Okay, so just completely take out the bit about Maggie coming from another farm and arriving arriving at this farm. Just have it be three lovely little cows who live on this farm. You can still have all their sort of, you know, conflicting personalities and everything that, that they throw in. They can still go off on, on this adventure to try and save the farm. But at least then there is stakes for all of the characters. Because Maggie literally arrives and is like, we've got to save the farm. And it's like, you've just you've just got here. And then, like you said, her motivation changes like throughout. Like, is she wanting revenge on the fact that her previous farm got taken over and what do the other cows want do they care are they you know are they invested as well or are they just kind of like along for the ride and it also starts off with like they're they're going into town to i don't know try and go to like a fair or something so they can win the prize for being the best cows i I don't know but it's i think you just you have to if if you take out that bit and just have 
or you know it doesn't even have to be all cows you know there are plenty of other great little critters on the farm you can have this sort of odd couple pairing of you know one of the cows the really grumpy goat and one of the cute little piggies or something and they go off on the adventure to try and save the farm and the story would still be quite slight and not really full of anything but it would be a bit more coherent i think if you just have it be these animals who live on this farm they've always lived on this farm you get the sense that they're a family they say that this cute little old lady absolutely loves all of these animals just have it be that have it be three animals or you know however many going off to try and find a way of saving the farm i think when you you throw in the catching the outlaw bounty hunting type of thing anyway it still gets a bit sloppy but it that to me feels more coherent and i don't need that subplot with with buck the horse as well i would i would honestly i would lose that entirely because it did nothing for me it added nothing to the overall story i know the 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 plot lines kind of converge at some point and they end up you know working together or you know helping each other out or whatever but it just it, it, that to me felt messy the the merging of those storylines because buck is kind of doing his own thing we spend way too much time with the villain as well who is horrible and we'll talk about him but yeah i don't know if i well, did actually fix it but i have attempted to make uh, it more coherent <laughs> i i think you made it more coherent but honestly i really do think that this is not a salvageable story um, i agree i i think <laughs> this is just look like like i like i just said a few minutes ago like there there are there are sometimes Sometimes stories seem great in concept, but when you start developing them, there's they, they just can't go anywhere, and that is okay. Um, mm -hmm. You know, these people all work at Disney. It's not like um, it's not like their lives are over if they can't get this thing going. You can you the idea of working at a company like this is you create tons of ideas, so many. Mm -hmm. You know, every every person at Disney probably has multiple ideas for films, and obviously they're only going to make at most like a couple of them are going to be released a year. Um, mm -hmm. You know, th these things take hundreds of people and, and hundreds of hours and hundreds of millions of dollars to create. So, you know, not everyone can create. But the, but the thing is, like, everyone has their ideas. So there's so many. You just have to accept that this one isn't working. After five years, why devote another four years to it and take out all the elements that made it seem interesting? Why remove mm -hmm. the supernatural aspect and, and, you know, this kind of folk, this kind of, like, dual focus on, like, humans? And the, originally this was a film mostly entirely about humans. Uh, and then I shifted mm -hmm. to kind of, like I, like I was saying through that quote, like, kind of switching into Lady and the Tramp, where it's more about animals. Uh, and then kind of ends up as this like weird hybrid between the two. Um, but it's just this, I don't think this is a story that should have been turned into a feature length film or even a short no. film. I just don't, I just, it, it's not it. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Even... This is a smart studio. They, 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 they seem to know what they're doing. And obviously this is a point where they're kind of just, we talked about this a lot how the 2000s is kind of just like throwing darts at the board and hoping they'll stick. And this mm -hmm. really feels like the biggest um, example of that because if you kind of listen to like the base pitch of all the other ones, let's let's go through them. Dinosaur, um, dinosaurs living. That is exciting to people. I I, I get it as a concept, like that, especially as like a CGI animated thing. I think that's a cool concept. Does it work? No, it was horrible, but you know they tried. Um, then is Emperor's New Groove, which has a great concept in in a really. I mean, again, but even that was like torn down completely. But that was kind of an example of like really really talented writers coming in and being like, look. 
let's just do what we've always kind of wanted to do throw it all together in a year and see if they see if we can pull it off and they do they didn't it wasn't recognized at the time but now is very much considered like a cult legend of sorts um and then there's <laughs> was lilo and stitch lilo and stitch was before treasure planet correct or after yes and you're missing atlantis atlantis okay so atlantis is like a big exciting adventure movie in in vein of the like kind of 50s like twenty thousand leagues under the sea i can also see that being an exciting story like all these pitches make sense um this friendship between a girl and, and an alien is, is is fun there's a lot you can do with that um you know the the concept of pirates in space of course like all of these sound like ideas that make sense don't you think and then all of a sudden mm-hmm, you have cows mm-hmm. trying to catch a bounty hunter and you're like wait a second <laughs> slow down what yeah i think also like if they'd have really oh i don't know do you know what even as i'm thinking about it now even as i spent like five minutes explaining how i think you could fix it i i genuinely don't think it's fixable i think this was an idea that should have been left on the shelf i don't think there is any salvaging of this story because it's so sloppy there's so much going there's so much going on there's so many different things it tries to to throw at it and the way that it i mean i want to say it moves at a fair pace but it, it it's it's short but also it feels so dull because it is really just these cows kind of plodding along on their little journey plodding uh, indeed yeah da- <laughs> danger just seems to come out of nowhere like i swear i looked away for two seconds and the whole like desert was flooded and i was like what is happening i don't that's understand. a patch flood that's how it works there you blink and well you <laughs> <laughs> clues in the name yeah and like the it just it's it's a lot of zany madcap set pieces that are strung together with the the thinnest the thinnest of plots and by the time you get to the uh, i don't know what to call it the climax of the film but like the, the end where they're sort of you know the villain is there and there's all these cows and they need to save the day and get the money and whatever i oh it's just it's just stuff happening it's it's what animated films make the mistake of just throwing a lot of kind of like bright colors action big set pieces all of these things and throwing all of those in and then littering it with these sort of off-color jokes you know to give the adults a chuckle but it's the storyline is so weak it's just so like there's nothing there's nothing there i immediately forgot about it as soon as it finished and i couldn't if i had to try and map out now like what exactly happens in terms of the plot you know what happens where the trouble they face along the way i think i would really struggle to do it just because it's so all over the place it's so messy yeah and i think that's it's a good point and i think we've we've spent a lot of time talking about what a just kind of discombobulated blob uh this this movie (laughs) kind of turned out to be but i think a good example which actually ties back to brother bear and how we talked about Mm -hmm. brother bear has kind of just songs that exist just to kind of like pad some time and i think the biggest example of that here is a song called will the sun ever shine again which is performed by bonnie Raitt, and the song is fine Mm -hmm. um alan menken wrote it as a um kind of like a emotional response to 9-11 which is wild um but like this kind of idea of like you know everything seems really really dark and and will things get better and like will the sun ever shine again 
Um, mm. So it works in in that sense. Obviously, that that is not relevant to the the plot of Home on the Range, but that's that's kind of where the song inspiration came from. Um, but this this scene is a real issue for me because mm. it it's it's it feels very like we need some sort of emotional moment. How about a song? Um, but the problem to me here is the montage that occurs tells us less than nothing and advances <laughs> absolutely nothing. It is just. It is the the farm owner lady sad on her farm looking at like her like childhood photos of the cows, which is kind of funny and probably not really fitting, but whatever, it works. Um, oh, sorry, it doesn't work. Um, and then you have um, like the sheriff. You just have a. It's just like looking at a bunch of people looking sad. That's mm-hmm. it. There is nothing else there. We don't learn anything about anyone nothing is advanced howard ashman is screaming being like look songs are supposed to be we talked about this last week too (laughs) songs are supposed to happen in these films and they work best when like there's nothing else you can say anymore and you have to sing instead and you feel that through not even just the films not even just the songs that he sang or he wrote um but after his legacy as well throughout the 90s you know in in mulan and, and in various other films you feel those songs mean something but here this this song adds nothing to this movie it's not and again it's not a bad song it is perfectly fine um and it's sung beautifully by bonnie Raitt. but like it doesn't add anything to this movie you learn nothing about anyone it advances nothing it is just it is just a way of adding three minutes to this film it really really infuriated me because i mean the other songs at least kind of like establish what's going on um there is one that is i think perhaps the worst song in disney history um which we will get to shortly but i guess this is a good transition into songs and this is just another kind of example of um a disney film putting a bunch of songs in just because it didn't it didn't feel like it needed any of them to be honest i will say i really like little patch of heaven and whenever i think about home on the range it's you know that little patch of heaven way out west that is always the first like thing i think mm-hmm. of i'm so sorry for people who have to once again listen to me sing uh but you know it's what you signed up for really um <laughs> but yeah it's it's that that little like line is what my the first thought i always have when someone um says home on the range and i, I think it's a delightful mm-hmm. little song and it sets up that moment wonderfully which why when you were talking about how it would be nice to just really focus on that farm unit as a family that song starts to do mm-hmm. and then the film's like nah let's establish like 15 characters and then get rid of 12 of them <laughs> yeah we we leave the farm like so quickly as well like there's i swear we're there for and like I... 30 seconds <laughs> yeah <laughs> and like so I'm already quite like Maggie has literally just arrived and then she's like peace we're, we've got to go and save the farm and it's like why do you care like you literally just arrived so that's a problem anyway but also, it's like um, I... it's like the Simpsons it's like the Simpsons meme um in the episode where um Bart works at the Maison Derriere and Grandpa Simpson comes through with yes. his hat and he's whistling and he just turns right around and leaves it's very that <laughs> It is very that yeah it's and I like some of those other characters on the farm I think um, I think the chicks who don't say anything, one of them just like crows really loudly, but they seem to have this way of like communicating with Mrs. Calloway that is just like like quite sweet. They just have cute little faces. The little baby pigs are kind of cute as well. I mean, the animation is still like pretty hideous, but I did like those characters. We'll get to who we stand later, but it is one of the the characters on the farm. Um, yeah, actually, just sorry, just before I forget, this is the only film I think that I can think of that makes an animal look uglier than they do in real life. 
when the goal yeah. is to make them look like a cute version. I don't think that's, I think, because it reminded me of what you were saying about the farm animals, which I agree. I think generally the farm animals, farm animal, sorry, um, are designed quite well um, mm-hmm. and look quite cute and, and fit the aesthetic of, of this kind of Western world well. Mm. These three cows look uglier than actual cows. Not that I'm saying cows are ugly. I think cows are adorable, but so should the the animated version of tech cows, especially from yeah. Disney, should be even cuter. We have had many adorable animals. In fact, we've had cuter cows in mm-hmm. um, 101 Dalmatians and um, another film that I can't remember, but we have had cows before. The cows are not new to Disney, um, and they've always been cuter than this. Uh, and I yeah. just I don't understand these like hideous angles and these extremely dramatic like almost like German expressionism like in um like backdrops with like crazy <laughs> jagged edges and I I don't understand that choice uh, and it makes the cows look really um unappealing and in fact those like generic CGI cows you see throughout are better looking, <laughs> <laughs> which is yeah. insane to me. Yeah, it really is. And I, I'm i definitely with you on the songs as well. I'm looking at the list of songs in front of me and at a push, I could remember the tune probably to like two or three of them. One is, I do like Little Patch of Heaven. I am with you on that. I think it's the probably the only good song in the film. The other song that I remember is uh for not good reasons because it is an abomination um and i think that i don't really think there's much else to say about the songs they're just kind of there they don't really add a whole lot i think little patch of heaven is cute and is fun to listen to i will be adding that to my disney playlist um but the rest will uh probably stay in the scrap heap of disney songs that i do not remember or like unfortunately um i yeah, think i think this is just one that doesn't need songs yeah, um, or it, or it could doesn't. have done without them, or have the characters sing about their experience or something. But like I, this decision, they've kind of transitioned from character singing songs in the last couple of films to having uh, singers sing them instead that aren't attached to the film, and it just mm-hmm. feels a bit. I don't know. It doesn't. The end credits makes it makes sense to have it, um, and yeah. the opening credits make sense to have it. But it's just like these these songs don't, with the exception of Little Patch of Heaven. But even even then, I would say like if I was looking at it now i'd probably just be like just don't have them they mm-hmm. they don't add anything yeah yeah i home, 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 i home. agree <laughs> and i think i think we're sort of heading towards talking about the the villain in this film and usually this is the time that we get really excited and we've got i'm kind of, of still notes. excited just for another reason <laughs> Yeah, we've got all of our notes ready to talk about all the things we love about the villain, but that is not the case this time, kids. We do not like this villain at all. That's so... such a polite sentence. <laughs> he is this guy called Alameda Slim. He's just really gross and uninteresting. I don't... His motives I sort of get. He is buying up all the land in the area because, Why? I don't know... He was treated Why? badly. Why, Sarah? You... Yeah, Why that's is he thing, building like... <laughs> farms? I'm asking because I have no idea. They do not yeah. bother to... The only thing that a villain needs to be interesting is a motivation. And yeah. it, he doesn't have one. They forgot. They were yeah. just... He's buying... Why is he buying them? It It is, like, hinted at that, like, someone or something has wronged him, but that's it. Mm. They do not tell us. We don't know. I don't know <laughs> anything about him. I know more about, um, is it Sean Yu 
from, yes. from Mulan? Is that his name? Yes. I know more about him because he had a bird, and that's pretty much all I know about him. And he he was he was like the leader of the Huns and wanted to take down the the emperor of China. That's that's enough. That is mm. something. And you know, I would consider Shan Yu in the very bottom tier of villains, and I would make a separate tier for Alameda Slim alone because I really think he's the absolute worst. Um. <laughs> He, to me, he kind of, this is like Disney kind of like looking through their past of generic villains. Like, he kind of has like a similar body type to Sykes um, Mm -hmm. and Ratcliffe, although Ratcliffe is infinitely more memorable. Um, Mm -hmm. But he has that kind of like really top heavy thing, which is weird because the song makes multiple jokes about him him having like XXXL size trousers, which make no sense because his trouser, Mm -hmm. his like waist seems extremely normal and he's just really top heavy. Um, so he probably does not have extra large trousers. His trousers are probably very normal size. It's just he probably wears like XXXXL shirts, which is just one of the 7,000 lazy um, errors that this film makes. But <laughs> he's he's quite generically designed. He is ginger, so that's fun. I don't think we've have we had a ginger. Oh, Medusa. Um, Madam, not Madam, uh, Madam Medusa. Yeah, from um, Rescuers, who also was bad. Mm. So there you go. Um, they have a real problem with gingers, which is a shame. Gingers are great. Well, I'm not saying gingers are great people. Sure there's, not, there's nothing wrong with gingers. They have souls, okay? They're good people. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's not, there's, it's fine. But Disney does not seem to care for them, is what I'm saying, at this point in time, anyway. Um, yeah. But the, 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 the big thing that they, they decided to go with an aspect of his personality over any actual motivation, and that's the fact that Alameda Slim yodels. Um, which inevitably leads us to what honestly feels like was designed as like the big show-stopping centerpiece of this movie, which is Yodelada Lidalidaloo, uh, which is the name of the villain song Alamedism, which is Yodelada Lidalidal Yodelada Lidalidal Yodelada Lidalidaloo. If you turned it off, then I totally understand. Um, but that's how it goes. Um. Essentially, he is the Pied Piper, um, and he yodels and can hypnotize cows. I actually think, um, perhaps controversial, I actually think as a concept that's pretty strong um, and mm-hmm. is, is quite fun and fairly unique. Um, mm-hmm. But the execution is beyond disastrous. I mean, you can't ask for any worse. It, it, it's a sequence that feels very reminiscent of a very... Uh, uh, it feels like they're going for Pink Elephants on Parade. Mm-hmm. Um, but they lost literally everything that made that scene unique um, and create maybe some of the ugliest minutes I've seen in a Disney movie um, that just looks really lazy, um, really poor, and it's just such a shame. But mm. this song is horrible. I think yeah. it, I'm going to go, I'm going to say now that Alameda Slim is the worst Disney villain to date. There might be some in the next few films that I don't remember that are just even worse. But to, to to date, I don't think there's a worse one because yes, we we spend more time with him than other characters. Um, maybe actually, he's a similar body type to McLeach in Rescue Down mm-hmm. Under as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we spend more time with him than we do like Sean Yu, uh, and Sykes and some of the other villains who like just make very limited appearances. But we don't know. I don't know anything about him, and I don't care about him at all. His mm. only thing is that he likes buying farms and yodeling, but I don't know why he likes either of those things. They don't explain what yodeling means to him. They don't, like, like, okay, the great villains, like, right from the bat, like, if not right away, you will learn why they feel the way they feel. Frollo, there is a whole song, and that song 
explains why he is who he... A lot of the great villain songs are kind of designed to show you who that character is. Poor Unfortunate Souls tells us who Ursula is. Mm. Um, Hellfire tells us who Frollo is. Um, Cruella de Vil isn't even sung by Cruella de Vil, but it tells you who Cruella de Vil is. Um, mm. You know, these these great songs inform us and advance the story and, and tell us things. This song just is him yodeling. <laughs> it, it isn't anything. Yeah. It it's it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it, it is and, not and good. The, <laughs> the only thing that makes it even worse is that he starts sorry, there's like some like random Easter parade sort of thing where like someone is like walking through the road and like carrying a bell. I'm just trying to ignore that. <laughs> anyway, I don't know if you can hear a bell or not. Uh but that's no. what that is if you can. Okay. Um <laughs> sorry, that was just really confusing. Um uh, Okay. Um the only thing that makes it worse is that the yodeling is not even like original. He literally just yodels various pieces of classical music, including the William yeah. Tell Overture in Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. As if they could even be lazier. He literally just yodels other music. Mm-hmm. They couldn't even come up with like an original tune. They're just like, I don't know, yodel some classics. <laughs> like, what on earth? <laughs> yeah, it's. It's a real, the yodeling is a real choice, and you did warn me about that, so I feel like I should have been prepared, but then when it happened, I really wasn't prepared. You can't be even listening to us if you haven't watched this yet. I bet you you can't be ready. No, because it's, that sequence is so odd as well. I I wrote down Pink Elephants as well in in my notes, but also, like, to, they were clearly going for that kind of thing, that sort of very, um strange and unusual you know colors and patterns and everything but really if they're trying to do a pink elephants style fantasy number it's a it's a bit of an insult to that because it's so oh god it's just so awful it's so horrible to look at it's so horrible to listen to and it it doesn't sit with the rest of the film either it's such a weird you know it it feels i i honestly felt like i hallucinated that whole sequence like that's part of the reason why i had to watch it for a second time because i was like did i imagine that entire bit have i started so taking weird. hard drugs for the first time in my life like what is yeah. happening <laughs> did someone slip like mega hallucinogens into my beverage or snacks like what is going it on it felt it felt that way um yeah. yeah it's it's a bad song generally and he is a dreadful villain i think Oh, I, I, there's some other villains that I just that are completely unmemorable. I will at least remember this person for all the wrong reasons. But I, I think he'll be very, very low down in my villain rankings. I don't know if I've quite got him at the the bottom yet. He is awful, but I uh, there's some that are just like just there and don't really do anything. But they they make this villain such a big part of the story, though that it's that it's even more noticeable how terrible he is just because you spend so much time with him and one thing i wanted to mention <laughs> is so he has this uh alter ego so when he's going to these auctions and like uh oh. buying up all the land he's in disguise and he calls himself yancey odell uh which when you just take the y of it it makes it spell yodel if you didn't get that it shows you on a sign at some point as well yeah this is mr what it's like mr y y odell o-d-e-l yeah okay <laughs> but also <laughs> oh yodels cool ah. <laughs> we get it yeah great yeah he 
I don't know if this is just me, but when he puts on his like Yancey outfit, is he like cosplaying as Ratigan? <laughs> I feel very attacked by that. <laughs> It feels like they're desperately trying to make him more interesting, and they just can't yeah. do it. So maybe they're trying to throw back to one of the genuinely great villains. One of the who, best by the way, villains. another song that tells you about who Radigan is, while also being fun and advancing the story. Um, oh, Radigan is it, so good. Yeah, he really. He just, <laughs> I cannot like honestly like. I feel like the one I'm most excited to rewatch when we're done is a great mass detective. Who would have ever thought? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 he's. Okay, and then along, uh, actually, another issue I have with him, right, is there's this whole, okay, so he has three henchmen who are the willies, uh, who are possibly even worse than yeah. Alameda Swim. They're, they're completely and utterly unbearable. I feel like 10-year-old, 12-year-old me would have found them hilarious, but, you know, 12-year-olds are dumb. That's okay. <laughs> like, you get smarter as you, you know, you get smarter as you go. You learn more and you, you understand more things. So dumb little me thought that they were really funny. And now old me realizes that they are not. You know, we have all these people in our opinions chain. Um, kids are stupid. <laughs> they need time to get smarter. It's fine. Um, <laughs> that's so mean. But that's, that's not necessarily true. But you understand that, like, the more you grow as a person, the more you understand things. So you will find things funny when you're younger that you don't anymore. Sorry for all the parents out there. I just, I'm just an evil person. <laughs> Um, I am the Alameda Slim. Uh, I am Alameda Slim. Um, yeah. I really, I hope so... that the out of context quote taken from this episode is you saying kids are dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. But they're not. I just explained. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I know. It's too late. It's been, don't, no, Sarah, I said the words. I, I have to deal with the consequences. Okay. Um, they they make jokes. The, the Willies make jokes, including... One of them saying, old Mike Donald had a farm. And then the Ugh. other one says, E-I-E-I-O. And I just wrote, I want to die, help. Um, <laughs> I actually think my most my most common note was, someone help me. I Help me, please. I need help. Mm -hmm. Will someone mm -hmm. save me? Um, I think mm -hmm. I wrote that a bunch of times. Um, <laughs> but there's, okay, so there's a plot point where on this map um, is kind of all of the farms that Alameda Slim is, is trying to take over. And there's one left called Little Patch of Heaven, which he has not seen because one of the willies likes sitting in the spot every time because it's, it's a comfortable spot, which is which is relatively humorous. But leads me to the question, and he, so Alameda Slim only sees it on this map when one of the willies moves, revealing Little Patch of Heaven. Who made this map? <laughs> it was not, it couldn't have been the willies because they don't seem to understand anything. And literally their entire personality is dumb is not knowing things it's being stupid it's being like a the cheapest version of like a southern person like the cheapest stereotype mm -hmm. of like an american southern person you can possibly find slack jawed dumb yokel um that's that's it they don't do anything else except be wrong and dumb so they did not make this map i refuse to believe that alameda slim must have made this map or he got it himself, and he does not know that something's there on the map that he potentially made himself, is mm -hmm. the seventh of the seven million plot, plot holes and like just unfinished things in this movie. Um, <laughs> and that really, really annoyed me. Because this... Mm. <sighs> but like, when you make a whole personality over someone yodeling, it's not gonna mm. work out well. That's the thing, yeah. like, like, do you... Do, do you think, if I was to say to you, how about a villain who can hypnotize a group of animals through song? Does that, do you think that's, like, potentially interesting? Yeah. Okay. I, I agree. Because um, I think as a concept, <laughs> it's strong. But when you make the whole, there's, there's nothing else to him. There is not a single other dimension, except for mm -hmm. the fact that he somehow has a lot of money. We have no idea how. Um, he buys a lot of farms. 
and the, and he yodels. But his only real personality thing is that he's really serious about yodeling. Mm. We don't know why he's buying all these farms. Is it to like create a giant loudspeaker where like only yodeling can be heard? That is mm-hmm. dumb, but at least it's something. But we don't get that. Um, in fact, I would actually kind of appreciate the audacity of such a ridiculous, like, secret villain plan. I think that could be fun. They don't do that. There's, there's no. nothing there. There's nothing. No thing. There was no motivation, no understanding of who he is, why he is there. Um, he doesn't necessarily need a backstory, but, like, give him. Give me anything. Mm-hmm. Anything. All we get is he doesn't like these willy people. He buys farms and he yodels. None of these are, are things about him. They're just, like, things he does. I, yeah, I it's baffling to me. I just I just need a motivation. Like that is all I need. I, and it has the perfect scene to put that in, but it doesn't give it to you. It's like okay, it shows you, you know, he's got this brand and he is you know burning it and putting it all over the map to mark all of the farms that he has taken over. What he is doing is basically gathering all the cows from those farms and then selling them off to uh, Steve Buscemi's character, who we meet very, very late into the to the film, um, who is dressed in purple, so you know he's bad. And, <laughs> and you know then, he has it... real aspirations of power, which he yeah. <laughs> Even then, it's like, okay, but but why? There's like a real, uh, like a throwaway line where he sort of says that, I don't know, other, other ranches like treated him badly or like didn't appreciate his talents or something. And it's like, okay, but why are you doing this is it you know is it solely for money like you've got the why does he want these cows right you've got the perfect opportunity to put something into this scene and explain his motivations like make something interesting about this character because the fact that he yodels to hypnotize cows is not enough for me like that's a, a a zany and unique kind of personality trait to give to a villain but why? Like, I need to know why. I need to know why he is doing this. Why, you know, does he have a, a, a purpose for that money that he gets off Mr. Wesley? Is, you know, what is what is happening? Why, <laughs> why like... is he buying all of the farms if he's just going to kidnap all the cows and sell them? Yeah. Like, just steal them, You would assume them, he's right? making some sort of super farm. Because, well, he can steal, he does, he steals them and then buys them. But why does he buy them? Oh, Barry, make it make sense. It makes less sense I now it. I think about it yeah, even more. It's, it's bad. <laughs> um, I will say Steve Buscemi is the best part of this movie because he has a line that says, um, I left Clown College for this. And <laughs> yeah, it's basically him saying, why am I here? Uh, and I had the mm-hmm. same question. So, you know, <laughs> uh, it, it, it made sense. Um, yeah. Which I guess before we move on from villains, there is technically another one. Um, and this is a big, this is a big is twist, oh, big spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you're super invested in Home on the Range and are like watching along somehow, pause this um, <laughs> and come back later. Uh, Rico, shock, horror, gasps, heard throughout our audiences as we share this information, um, who uh, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s horse Buck uh, is desperate to like be uh, Rico, who is a human uh, and like a bounty hunter his steed and like be in with him and like save the day and be a hero is buck's motivation who like you forget about for most of this film because he disappears for many moments um and it's just one of those characters that they 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 obviously made forgot about and like a week before they were done they're like oh 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 no (laughs) we forgot about buck what do we do um that's what it feels like anyway um but anyway the the 
the guy who he's taking around is Rico, who's a bounty hunter who's supposed to capture Alameda Slim. But it turns out, gasp, that Rico actually works for Slim, which could have been interesting if we knew lit. If you think we know nothing about Alameda Slim. I don't even think I heard Rico speak until this moment. Like, he doesn't say anything. He's just a bounty hunter. He has no, he he has, he truly has no personality. Not a single, I, I cannot tell you anything about him except the fact that he's a bounty hunter. Can you? Did I miss something? No, I, I wish I knew. I wish I knew more. I wish I could help you out, but I've got nothing. So then, <laughs> so then they have another big, so then like their big twist in this movie, right, is that, Rico is actually working for Alameda Slim, but we don't know anything mm-hmm. about Rico or Alameda Slim. So who who is affected by this? Who cares? <sighs> yeah, it's a good question. Man, <laughs> I feel like like don't get me wrong. I really don't think this one is particularly redeemable. Um, we've talked about a lot, like Hunchback of Notre Dame. You know, switch a couple things. It's a masterpiece. Um, mm-hmm. Brother Bear, mm-hmm. move a few things around. You've got a really good movie. This, mm-hmm. I, I feel like it is it is in such shambles. Uh, yeah. that you, there, I really don't think you can fix it without just making a different movie. Yeah, I don't think there's anything salvageable in this in this film, not in its current form anyway. And I, the concept that you read out at the start, that to me is more interesting. I think, Agreed. and they could have done, but, but more they with they that. couldn't make it work. So if the yeah. creators of this could not make it work after five years, stop it. Yeah, just don't. And just then don't maybe do it. they're both still alive. <laughs> they both still work um with Disney occasionally or or frequently. You could just maybe now would be the time to look at Home on the Range as a film. Maybe there's something it has to say about America or society as a whole, and maybe it has something to say now in its current format or as a throwback mm-hmm. to the Western genre. Um, there was just a Western that did News of the World get a Best Picture nomination, or am I, am I imagining mm, things? Uh, it got nominated for something. I don't know if it was Best okay. Picture. Okay, so like, yeah, there there is the odd Western that appears nowadays and does fairly well. Like they still, mm. it's it's very much a a I don't want to say completely dead genre, but close to dead. But there are there have been various attempts um that have been successful, like the remake of True Grit, for example, um bringing back the Western genre and nowadays you could probably make something kind of cool with these cows and make it grittier and, and interesting. I don't know. Um. Mm. But I just, you mentioned earlier about how it's like age really badly, and I completely agree. But the thing is, usually when things age badly, it's like 30, 40, 50, 60 years later you're looking at it. <laughs> this is this is 2004. Uh, this is yeah. um, 2021, so now 17 years ago. Um, almost, because we're recording this at the beginning of April, and it came out in April, almost a full exact 17 years um, mm-hmm. from its release. And that's not that, I mean, that's a lot of time, yeah, and a lot of things aged poorly quite quickly, but, like, usually, if you're, like, I'll use the example of of The Jungle Book as something that, to me, I've really disliked now that I liked when I was younger, because I'm looking at um, at it in a lens of an almost 30-year-old for a film that came out in the 60s. So it's not unreasonable Mm. that that film would be very different. When we look at Peter Pan and, and what makes the Red Man Red song, uh, actually, sorry, I take it back. That is the worst Disney song, bar none. There's no comparison. Um, <laughs> but this is the worst villain song. Um, you know, you look at that in, in the context of the 50s, it, it's still inappropriate, but it makes sense. Um, but this just makes no sense in any time period. Uh, mm-hmm. It is, it's a shame because I feel like there is, there's a lot of talent in the animators. Uh, there's a lot of talent in the voice cast. And it's just... It just is not it. And, and, and funny enough, um, Randy Quaid, who's the villain, who's the voice of Alameda Slim, um, has become like a like a Trump conspiracy 
person, and I'm I think like potentially mm. cute. I don't know. Um, but he he's gone way off the rails, just like this movie. Um, so I guess he's very symbolic <laughs> of Home on the Range. Uh, maybe yeah. working on Home on the Range destroyed him forever. I don't know. I I know very little about Randy Quaid. Um, and I don't care to know anymore. Um. <laughs> Should we talk about more negative things before we end with who we should we? I guess we should end with who we stand because that's a high note, and we should leave. We yeah. should leave these people with some sort of positivity because oh my goodness, there's so little here. Um, <laughs> I think we're about to go to the lowest of the low as well in terms of some of the jokes in this. Uh, in this film, yeah. So, okay, let's yeah, take, let's take go it away. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> um, we talked about the it, the the uh, that the film got a PG rating because of. A joke that literally happens in like the first twenty seconds of the film, where we have like a real like close up shot of uh, too close, uh, if anything, of <laughs> um Maggie the cow's udders, and she says, "Yeah, they're real. Quit staring." I mean, <laughs> I don't, I don't need. That. I changed my mind. It's really funny now. <laughs> and then, and then it gets so much worse with these dreadful characters one of which unfortunately shares a name with my beloved co-host here um yeah, it was upsetting <laughs> the representation you have had in the last couple of films barry you do not deserve it you deserve so much Look, better I've, I've got to say the name the name barry <laughs> is very frequently used for awful characters in <laughs> movies and tv um and i think that's rude um and <laughs> Look, I know it's a fairly unique name these days, and I know it's more or less exclusively associated with, like, older white men who, like, shout on their porches. Um, but I'm not that yet. Give it, like, 10, give it, like, 30 years before I do that. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there, yeah, justice for berries. Um, because I think we're nice. Well, okay. Also, if you Google my name, my full name, the first result is a serial killer. So... <laughs> Which again, I I can't be any clearer. It's not me. Um, but I'm I'm really sick of this. I'm really sick of horrible people giving the name Barry. I've had it. I think I'm a nice person. Um, and I think yeah. I hope you agree. Can you imagine? I you're do. like actually, you are a monster, and then we never do this again. But you know, like I I think I bring something to the table. I think I have a lot to offer, and I think I people enjoy being around me. So I think we need more Barrys like that. Um, mm-hmm. in in cinema and TV and books and literally anything because we get a we get a horrible rap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate and <laughs> yeah, this character in Home on the Range. So there are two of them. It's not just it's not just Barry, but there are these bulls called Barry and Bob, and they are. I can only describe them as very sexually aggressive. Yeah, big <laughs> monsters. Yeah, yeah, all of the above. Fundamentally and... bad people. Yeah, some of the so obviously the you know these three lady cows are you know. Uh, walking through this big herd of bulls, and they all sort of wake up, and then they're giving them the they're giving them the eye. But they it, it's the thing like the things they say as well. They're like, oh, you know, maybe like maybe we can help each other or something. And then like a a, a big over exaggerated wink. And the perhaps the worst is the one who I think is Barry. Unfortunately, is the uh-huh. one who sort of like slides up. To, I can take it. Um, it's okay. <laughs> who slides up to Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Calloway and has got a, a hoof. I don't know. I don't want to know where this hoof is, but it's not somewhere a hoof should be. And she says, like, move, move your hoof, basically. And he's and he says, I thought you were the blonde. What does that mean? What does this mean? Why are they like this? <laughs> it's it's grotesque. And 
it, it's uncomfortable, and it's it's okay. So it's very clearly established of these three cows. We haven't even mentioned uh, Jennifer Tilly's cow, Grace, who perhaps is the only cow that isn't completely and utterly horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something, <laughs> I guess. But she is like an airhead and sings horribly, which is an essential kind of story point, if you can believe it, uh, because she mm-hmm. doesn't get hypnotized um, by Alameda Slim because her like sense of pitch is so whack and so off that she doesn't consider like what he's doing singing. Um, so she's actually kind of the reason she's the reason that the farm is saved basically. Um, she's like kind of like Meriwether, like that underappreciated character who mm-hmm. saved the day. Although I'm so sorry, Meriwether, to compare you to one of to anything. <laughs> in Home of the it, it wasn't meant to be that way. Um, but yeah, so. I just, I, I've, I've honestly, I'm so angry. I forgot where I, what I was talking about. Um, Grace. So Grace likes them. Okay, that's. Mm. I think that's fairly established. Grace is Grace is fine with these two bulls. Maggie seems fairly indifferent, and, and Mrs. Calloway. Mhm. Mhm. Judy Dench hates them. Mhm. Hates. Really, really aggressively dislikes. So, at the end of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> when everything is saved, and these bulls obviously are one of the many characters that show up for a while, disappear for a really long time, and then pop back up for some reason. Um, they appear at Little Patch of Heaven, because the farm has been saved. Spoiler. Um, shocking, I'm sure. Um, and they return, and they dance with the cows. And one of the bulls that Mrs. Calloway hates with her whole soul are like happily dancing away as if they're in love now. It's mm-hmm. gross, it's horrible, and I really hate it. And... Mm-hmm. Um, they they literally harass them. Like, there's no other way to describe what they're doing because they do not like it, and they want them to stop, and they keep going. Um, the only one that's fine is Grace because she was into it the whole. She likes them. Um, but like, it's a really uncomfortable sequence. It just kind of slaps mm-hmm. on yet another reason why this film does not work and it's disastrous. Um, is that like this this dance at the end is it makes no sense. Um, like they've literally just slapped rent. You know, usually that you have no idea how what you're doing if your film ends with like an inexplicable dance party um mm-hmm. a lot of movies about getting married end with like a wedding dance which makes sense at least because that well that is what happens at weddings um but i i think this was actually this feels like a direct response to shrek um mm-hmm. which ends in like a dance party but like it feels like it makes sense at least in that little world um and it's a really silly kind of goofy like f you to disney and then disney just does it anyway which is really <laughs> funny because i don't think i think like the whole point of that shrek ending is to like kind of point out how dumb and silly like just a slapped on happy ending are, is for a lot of disney mm-hmm. films um and then this is just like that's <laughs> all the people who made home of the range watched shrek and they were like wow what an amazingly really insightful ending and then just copied it <laughs> like, it's, it's, even though even though Shrek was like, you're idiots, look how dumb you are. And they're like, we agree, this is great. <laughs> Do it anyway. <laughs> and like, all, like none of the pairings make any sense. Like, they're all just dancing in, in this farm. And like, it, none, of, none of it has anything to do with anything. And it's, it's, it's bad. It's a terrible mm-hmm. ending. And the fact that these bulls are like fully redeemed for being horrible. And like, they find their, they get their partners in the end is really upsetting and not, and not okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are dreadful. I wasn't sure I could hate two characters as much as I hated the moose in Brother Bear, but these these guys really took the uh, took the biscuit. I could not stand to look at them. There's such grotesque characters, and yeah, the ending where they like, I, I thought they were going to get their comeuppance because they like collide with a post, and I was like, oh great, good. I'm glad that they experienced some pain, and then they rock up at the end and are like. 
happily dancing away with the cows and i'm like this isn't this isn't okay this doesn't send out a good message to honestly people. i would like, not have i would not have been surprised if alameda slim himself was like dancing with the farm lady at the end oh, i have a theory okay I mean... of of the true <laughs> villain of this piece um okay i'm ready so hear me out <laughs> in the end it's established that they they capture alameda slim they get mm-hmm. the 750 dollars uh, and the sheriff very rudely assumes that the cows would have no use for this money, so they just give all the money to the woman, um, which, you know, fine. Uh, so she has her $750. Now, can I just say, they tr- they crash a train into the farm. <laughs> so I think it's fair to say that the damages that have just been caused probably are more than $750, and therefore mm-hmm. she's probably not unable to pay off her debt, but whatever, she is. In, the, in this world, she pays off the debt, and the farm is magically saved because they don't have debt, even though they're not making any money. However, <laughs> I have a theory to this. Mm-hmm. We don't see any other farm being restored. I, I have no choice but to believe that Little Patch of Heaven has become rather similar to the Disney company itself and has swallowed <laughs> up all of the other surrounding farms and has created an entire monopoly in the farming community. And perhaps this was in, perhaps Alameda, I don't know, man. Maybe she, maybe, I'm going to call her Pearl because that just seems like her name. Um, the it the is, farm owner. <laughs> Of course it is. Um, or like Ma Bailey. Like those are the only like two options I can see for this woman. Um, I think Ma Bailey is um, is maybe Fox and the Hound. Anyway. Yeah. Um, Pearl is, I love that that's her name if that's true. Pearl is the real villain of this story because what she's done is she purposefully hid herself on this map. Um, and he couldn't find it. So he took off, he took over every single other farm. And then she because all these farms are empty and deserted, has come in and taken over all the other farms. Therefore, Pearl and the Little Patch of Heaven are a criminal conglomerate, just like the mm-hmm. dogs in Oliver and Company. They are evil, and they have won, and I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I mean, I'm not going to argue with that theory, because uh, it all sounds just as plausible as the other nonsense that happens in this film so i buy into it immediately uh- <laughs> also can i can, what happened to the so you know how there's like 500 cows that have, what happened to the other 497 are they gone mm, a good did question. he get away with that or or is pearl working with steve buscemi and mm. she's actually going to get all these cows back mm-hmm. that's what i think is happening mm-hmm. see that can you can you imagine if they actually ended with like a twist like that? I'd be like five stars. I take back everything I said about this piece of garbage. It is a masterpiece. Um, but no, they, they didn't. Stars. This this film this film is a tr- honestly it's a catastrophic failure. And to me, um, the nadir of Disney, which is to say mm. the lowest point in all of Disney, <laughs> worse than Dinosaur, worse than Fun and Fancy Free, um, mm. worse than the because to me those have redeeming qualities mm-hmm. mm. dinosaur is hard to say that but dinosaur has that ex- spectacular extinction scene at the beginning mm. which is really breathtaking yeah. um and i think it blends like real environments with cgi really impressively and i think it deserves kudos for that mm. um and fun and fancy free has a really 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 timeless hilarious joke um when the with, with like mickey and donald and, and goofy and they're poor so they're slicing the bread and they're like so thin they're like literally translucent slices that is <laughs> one of my favorite moments in all disney so like you know those films have their moments mm. this has a nice song um i don't know where to go from there it has mm. nice backgrounds um sometimes uh, <laughs> it has a drag joke 
the scene at the saloon is is relatively funny question mark someone does shout so basically there's a scene at the saloon when they go into town um the cows obviously not people uh mm-hmm. go into the go into the saloon thinking it's the sheriff's office um and they go on stage with these like three like um saloon performers these ladies um and someone shouts get these cows off the stage and i there's potential for an inappropriate but relatively funny joke there, but they don't do anything with it, obviously, because mm-hmm. why would they? Um, but there's one of the like three dancers is revealed to be um, someone's dad in the someone in the audience's <laughs> father, which I thought was really funny. Um, I think the one time I, I I don't think I laughed, but I did like my lips curve, my lips stopped aggressively frowning. So that was something. <laughs> I burned like a thousand calories just like violently frowning throughout this movie. Yeah, um, agreed. But yeah, it's. <laughs> Let's shoot. I guess the one redeeming thing is a character who's on screen for like fifteen seconds. So should, we talk, should we talk about her? Yeah, the one good. I don't know, thing man. I'm so film. I'm so hurt by this. <laughs> yeah, we we have to find a character that we stand. I was honestly concerned that for the first time ever, this would be we would be like we don't like any of them. They're all gross. There's no one who we like here. This film is an abomination. And I mean, we came pretty close, but we did settle on. A lovely little chicken called Audrey. And what is notable about this uh, chicken is that she is voiced by Estelle Harris, who was our choice for In This House We Stand last week. Uh, she voiced, uh, I think it was Mabel, the like old lady bear. Um, and honestly, anytime her voice is in anything is just a real treat. She has a really great voice for animated characters. Um, I think most people will know her as Mrs. Potato Head from the Toy Story films. Um, so you will instantly... Also, also she's in, um, she's the a main character in Everybody Loves Raymond. Ah, okay, yeah. I have not, probably, which I is have probably, not like, her it. biggest thing. But for animation folk, definitely Mrs. Mm. Potato Head is her iconic thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she has, she has one of those voices that you'll be like, I have heard that somewhere, where is it? And it's yeah. probably that you've heard it in Toy Story. Um, but she's great in this, I don't, like, I'm trying to think of my favourite, like, Audrey moment. She's just generally quite funny to look at and uh has a great voice so i don't know if there's anything else uh more I, notable also, that you I, I totally confuse sitcoms um she's she's from seinfeld not um uh, okay i'm so i'm so sorry <laughs> Estelle. please don't come for me <laughs> um yeah do you have a do you have a particular uh favorite audrey moment or just you just like the character um, and the one the line i can remember much? her saying uh i really liked which is who would want to eat chicken <laughs> A good point. As a vegetarian, I I was like, I'm almost certain I ate chicken moments before that scene. Oh, Um, (laughs) this is where we're different. I was like, as a vegetarian, can relate. (laughs) (laughs) And you're like, where's the chicken? (laughs) I was like, I literally just ate one. Um, Yeah. Okay. Um, There's not really much else to say about her. This this film really broke me. I gotta say because I, I I like I said at the beginning I had really fond memories of this one. I knew it was gonna be different. I had a feeling mm. it was gonna be different. Mm-hmm. But I I walked into this movie. I was ready to defend its honor, uh, <laughs> and then it unfolded in front of my eyes. And within moments, I realized that was not gonna happen. Um, and I just I'm honestly like I feel cheated. I feel uh, distressed. I'm so nervous for next week because I like unapologetically love Chicken Little. Um, <laughs> I'm scared. And, uh, yeah, it's been a. I last watched it. Well, I last watched it five years ago, and I I didn't hate it then. So I'm. I have a feeling I'm still gonna defend. It's really. If you think this movie is ugly, just wait. Um, <laughs> I I can't wait. I'm so excited. It's so. It's so like. 
I think it's just one that I know is really bad and I just don't care. So I'm excited to see how that goes. But this this one hurt me. Um, yeah, it, I'm sad. <laughs> <laughs> it's just I think this is I think this is their worst movie. Um, yeah. I, I don't think it has much to redeem. I think it is a story that probably never should have gone through to this point at all. Mm. The villain is think literally the worst i would say the song is probably the second worst disney song next to what i i have blocked out what makes the red man Man, so i did yeah. forget about it but I, I i don't think there's any question that there will be no song worse than that one mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but i think i think this is second worst um this the like henchmen are probably the worst hen- like villain sidekicks you can get um it's awful yeah it the jokes aren't funny um, the story is the laziest and most threadbare with the most, there are, there are, there are more plot holes than plot developments. Mm. It is just, it is wild. The, the characters are the the worst they have had. Not one is redeemable except a chicken who makes like one joke and appears <laughs> for 10 seconds. Um, that's how, that's how far down the barrel we had to scrape. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say this does continue the trend of aspect ratio changes. That's fun. <laughs> um, that's like one of the, maybe the one decent moment. Um, yeah, besides I liked Little Patrick bit. Heaven, um, yeah. With Buck, who kind of establishes Buck as a character you might be interested in, but then we totally basically forget about him for the rest of the movie. Um, <laughs> but like Buck has a dream sequence where it's like a, it's like a fun little um, pastiche to Western films mm. uh, and TV shows. And then they kind of lose any essence of a Western after that. Um, it also has not very good CGI blending. Um, I think you wrote this in the notes, and I actually wrote yeah. the exact same thing down that the roller coaster bit in the mine looks like a bad video game, mm-hmm. um, and it's not shoddy. aged well, which is funny because they just had like CGI in in earlier films that still have aged really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the I don't know the like the various bits where you see loads of bulls or like loads of cows, they just don't. They look okay. I mean, they look better than the three cows we have. <laughs> Um, but that's not saying much. This mm. this film just really, I, I don't I don't really get any pleasure of saying terrible things about people that I know, or not about people, but about a film that I know hundreds and hundreds of people have worked on. But it's just very bad, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. And it happens. There, you know, I, I I'm not gonna. Um, it's not like not like the Disney Corporation is sitting around listening to that. I mean, maybe they are. They change their <laughs> advisory ratings on Disney Plus because of us and us alone. Um, but you know, it's it, you can't you can't. There's no point doing this if we just say everything is great. That's boring. Yeah. Um, exactly. and also not true. In in and not a fair and like we're trying to really dive deep into these movies and figure out what makes them work, why people like them, what mm. is so what is so enduring about Disney, what is so exciting about it as a company. There are few companies on the planet that are as well known by name as Disney is, and it's it's fascinating to dive into the works that made them who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've loved doing it, but there are just times where the films are just so <laughs> awful uh, that there's just very little positive to say about it. So apologies for listeners if it feels <laughs> relentlessly negative, but hopefully it's been fun to listen to. Because mm. I've, had, I've had fun talking about it, but it just, it's just it's rough, man. It's rough, Sarah. I'm having a yeah. rough time. You, you, can, yeah. you take it away. I'm, I'm having a tough time. Yeah, it's this film is, is hard. I think like even when we spoke about fun and fun and fancy free and dinosaur which neither of us liked i i think there was still more we were able to pick out of that than that we liked and actually another conversation we were having before we started recording is is about ratings and how hard it is sometimes to give a rating to a film and i particularly struggle with animated because i appreciate that a lot 
of time goes into making an animated film. So for me to like absolutely trash it and be like half a star, I mean, it has to be like the Emoji Movie or the Queen's Corgi or something, which I don't care how much time was put into <laughs> into those films. Like they're both trash and half a star is honestly too kind for particularly the Queen's Corgi. But with this, I I, I had it at two stars because... That is what I have rated the other bad Disney films. So I gave the same rating to Dinosaur. I gave the same rating to Fun and Fancy Free. But I think it's I think it's lower. I think this is the worst. I think this is the worst so far. And it's only through sort of talking about it where even the things at the time where I was like, okay, I didn't necessarily like that, but I appreciated it. Now that I've had a bit of time to kind of ponder it and, and talk about it as well, I'm like, wow, it's really a struggle to pick out things that I like about this film like even the character that we stand this week who I, I think if she wasn't voiced by Estelle Harris I don't think I would have a character this week who I like um, you wouldn't even remember that the chicken was there no it was and the thing is I was like oh maybe it'll be the dog you know like the cute little sheriff dog but then he makes a joke about mud wrestling when the cows are like having a like a fight in the street <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm that like was you're weird. so close so close to being you know you're a dog so naturally we will like you but then <laughs> you're also a terrible, <laughs> terrible yeah. character. Everyone is awful. This film, I don't think it's broken me as much as it's broken you because I had no nostalgia or childhood love of this <laughs> film at all. Mm -hmm. But really, God, it's awful. The more I think about it, the worse it is. So I I think we we better start wrapping up because <laughs> this there's only so much torture we can take uh, talking about this film and thinking about this film. But it's been fun still. I've I've had a great time talking about it. Um, do you want to very quickly take us through the themes? There is not a whole lot to get stuck into here, but just as we always sort of mention yeah. them. Um, sidekicks, the worst you'll ever find. <laughs> um, these willy things that just are dreadful. Um, Buck <laughs> is I don't even I don't even know if you can classify him as a sidekick. He's just a no. character who like appears from time to time. And then Lucky Jack, who they make a shaman for some insensitive reason. Mm. Um, and he's just like he's at the, he's there at the beginning and then disappears for like fifty full minutes. And again, this film is like seventy minutes long, so that is the vast majority of this movie. Um, <laughs> and then appears for like some shenanigans. And they're all just they're all just woefully mm. underdeveloped. Mm -hmm. um, man and nature, sure. There, there's man and nature together. I guess I don't know. This, this film really, I, I don't know what it has to say, uh, yeah. and I couldn't tell you. Um, mm -hmm. Absence of a parent. I mean, the cows don't have parents, um, and Pearl, I guess, is their like surrogate mother because she like takes care of them or whatever. I, I really, I genuinely have no idea if her name is Pearl. I'm just so convinced. It is um, Pearl. <laughs> that's, that makes me so happy. Um, and then a Disney death, um, kind of, because there's, like, a moment where, like, the two, um, Grace and, um, Mrs. Calloway are, like, lamenting the loss of Maggie because they think she has died, um, and she's, like, chewing cud in the background, uh, which is kind of amusing and kind of a fun take on the Disney death, but that's, that's as far as this goes. Honestly, like, kind of amusing and relatively humorous is the very peak of this film. Mm. I didn't even clock that as a, as a Disney death because, like... <laughs> I think there was a point where she, um, earlier in the film, she's like, once we get back to the farm or, or once we save the farm, I'll walk out the gate and never come back or something. So I assumed that's what they were thinking, like when they were looking sort of sadly out the gate that they thought she had just left or something. I didn't even clock that as them thinking she might be dead. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, look, this is a this is a film that has like a big emotional moment, and I I use that word loosely, where Mrs. Mm-hmm. Calloway and Maggie have a big fight over nothing, uh, mm-hmm. and then get over it seconds later. So you know, hey, <laughs> um, emotional um, nuance is not this this film's treat. Uh, it I wouldn't worry about it. No, no, not at all. Okay, I I think we are well and truly broken shell of our former selves. Uh, so we were. <laughs> I don't start. think it's gonna get better either. <laughs> oh, I am so. I, I don't even wait. know. I don't even know my feelings towards Chicken Little because I have seen it, but I have not seen it since I saw it at the cinema. So I remember even at the time not enjoying it that much. So this is it's gonna be wild to revisit it. I think and. Also, this is our first, this is our first, like, all CGI Disney, so it's gonna, I don't feel like it's gonna have aged particularly well, uh, but we will see. I'm looking forward to finding out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I really fear for you. (laughs) Oh boy, the fun will continue next week. Okay, (laughs) of course, we want to say a huge thank you to our Patreons uh, for their support, and they are... Chris Wilson, Enon Films, Zoe Baines, Daryl Griffiths, Sam Luck. I totally forgot I was supposed to say something. Orla Smith, Peter Hodgkins, <laughs> Andy Meekin, Fabiana Roses, and Hamish Calvert. Martin Richmond, Manuel Bento, and Robert Denny. You pulled it back, Barry. Don't worry. <laughs> I was totally just like in, a, in my pit of despair thinking about that utter joke. And I was just like, I'm all alone in this world. Yeah, it's understandable. <laughs> totally understandable at this point. Um, so yes, a huge thank you to our Patreons for their support and to all of our other Patreons as well. Um, you can find out how to become a Patreon on Jump Cut's website and the different tiers that you can give out and all the fun perks you get as well. The new magazine has just come out, so if that is something that you would like to receive for free, then you can get that uh, when you become a Patreon, or you can just buy it uh, separately as well. Um, so go and have a look at that. Barry, I, I'm honestly, I'm emotionally drained by this whole experience, but it has, as always, been an absolute treat uh, to talk to you about this film. Oh, the chaos that has ensued as we've tried to pick apart this film, but it's... Watching it's... my childhood crumble in slow motion has been quite the treat. Yeah, you, you text me that, like, after, like, immediately after you finished watching it, you text me, it was just like, my childhood is ruined. I think it was something like that. Um... <laughs> I oh wait! I just watched it. Just slaughtered my childhood. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah, that's oh, it. That, that's no. apt. Yeah. Um. But anyway, thank you <laughs> as always for being here with me. Um. And if you want to let people know where they can find you on Twitter and elsewhere. Sure thing. You can find me on Twitter at blevit93, and you can find me on Letterboxd at blevit. Yes, indeed. And you can find me at Sarah Buttery on twitter and you can find all of us at jumpcast underscore you can check out all of our written reviews features interviews news and more at jumpcutonline.co.uk and go straight to jumpcutonline.co.uk forward slash jumpcast to find out where you can find all of our podcast episodes the next jumpcast episode will be dropping on monday and we'll be back with a brand new disney episode next friday talking about chicken little heaven help Film us 46 <laughs> 46 Yeehaw. uh we are really we are really ploughing through it. We are we are heading headfirst towards the end point, but many films to discuss before then. So uh join us next week for that and uh we'll see you then. Yeah.